Well, amen. Good morning, church. I hope you're doing well uh, today. My name's Billy. If you don't know me, I get the privilege to serve here as one of the pastors, and it's a huge honor for me to serve you guys in that way. Uh, if you have your Bible, would you go ahead and open up with me to John chapter 16? Uh, John chapter 16. If you're new here, uh, we want you to know everything here uh, is about one mission, and that's connecting people to a growing relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. That's really what drives everything that we do from worship to our kids' ministry, student ministry, college ministry, whatever ministry it is that we do, and even the time that we spend in God's Word every uh, Sunday morning, we're doing that so that you can be connected to a growing relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. And so if you've been here uh, over the past uh, really seven, eight months, you know we've been walking through the Gospel of John. And so the Bible has four Gospels in it. These are kind of biographies of the life of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so there are four different authors that wrote them, but of course the Holy Spirit uh, through them is who wrote one divine author. But uh, we get four different kind of viewpoints of Christ and what he did at his time on earth and who he was. And uh, we've been talking about this idea of the real Jesus has been the series name. And, and what I mean by that is that we live in a culture uh, that has really began to take the name of Jesus and kind of uh, shape it around uh, culture itself, or uh, maybe to personalize that, uh, people are taking Jesus and pretty much just making him who they want them to be. And uh, whether, that's a, whether that's based on the Bible or not, it could be based off of their experiences or just based off of who they want Jesus to be and who they think he should be. And, and one of the things that I've been challenging us as a church to understand and to know and to really begin to think through is, is the Jesus in your mind, the one that you think about, who you would call Jesus, is it the Jesus that we find in the Bible, or how have you shaped him to be who you want him to be? Because this is huge. The, the, ex, the implications of you twisting Jesus to become who you want him to be versus receiving him and walking with him and following him for who he truly is are, are huge. Your joy, your satisfaction, your fulfillment is not found in you making Jesus who you want him to be, uh, but actually following the Christ of the Bible. And so it's very, very important that you begin to allow Scripture to shape your view of who Christ is. And so with that, we're going to jump into John chapter 16, uh, verses 16 through 33. And so keep in mind kind of the context of where we are. Jesus is in an upper room uh, he's, he's on his way to the cross. He has his 12 disciples at this point, his 11 disciples. Judas has already left to go betray him. And so he's with them. Uh, this is about 24 hours before he will go uh, and die. And so this is a pretty intimate moment in the life of Christ. And of all the things that he could have been doing in this 24 hours, he spent his time with his 12 closest followers, his 11 now closest followers, really teaching them what to expect. Uh, teaching them, really sharing his heart with them. And so I want you to hear it uh, through that lens. And so let's start together in verse 16. This is the word of God. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, 
Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And so again, keep in mind, this is a conversation, uh, really the longest conversation, the, wrong, the longest monologue that we get uh, of Jesus in the book of John, where he is spending time with his disciples. It started way back in John chapter 13, but we're kind of finishing it up today, and he'll pray in John 17, but he's finishing up this farewell discourse, as most people call it. So it's farewell, meaning he's leaving, discourse, meaning it was his monologue uh, and, and conversation with his disciples. And so these are Jesus's final words as he goes uh, to the cross. And so they're super intimate. They're, they're very heartfelt. Uh, and Jesus just has this heart to prepare his disciples for what is to come. And the disciples are really in a bit of a panic at this point because Jesus continues to tell them that he's going away. Uh, he's going away and in a little while, they're going to see him no more. And so uh, they're, they're, you know, they love all the other stuff. But really, since John 13, he told them that that's what they've been focused on. What do you mean you're leaving? Hold on now. Like, we, we left everything to follow you. Now you're just packing it up and leaving. They, didn't, they couldn't really understand what Jesus was saying. All they heard was that he was leaving. I almost think about, like, uh, my one-year-old daughter. Anytime Kate leaves the room, I mean, she's just like, that's all she can think about. You know, it's like, Kate, get away from here because all she wants is you, right? Uh, it's the same thing. All they can think about is, is Jesus leaving, and they're really in a bit of a panic. And at this point, they don't really understand what's about to happen. All they know is that he's leaving. So they're confused, they're worried, they're scared, uh, they're fearful. Um, and, and so they can't really hear anything else that Jesus is. But now we kind of get the privilege to read it on the back end where we know Jesus is going to the cross. He'll end up resurrecting and coming back. And so now we hear Jesus' words, and it's like, oh, wow, there's some powerful statements that Jesus makes in here. Verse 19, he says, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after that, after a little while, you will see me. We know that's a reference to Jesus going to die on the cross. He'll be put in a tomb. Uh, he'll be uh, killed. And so that means a little while, you'll see me no more. But then we also know three days later, he comes out of the grave and resurrects, and he will come and actually appear to his disciples after three days, and so in a little while you'll see me no more, and then in a little while you'll see me, right? So he's referring to this process of what's about to happen, but keep in mind, don't judge them too much. Like, they didn't know that. I mean, they, he had told them, but they kind of, they didn't understand it. Now we look at it and read it completely differently because we know uh, the event of the resurrection. And so verse 20, he says, very truly, I tell you, you weep and mourn while the world rejoices. And again, Jesus is talking about his death and his burial and his resurrection because the world was actually excited that they killed Jesus because he was trying to tell them how to live their life. He was trying to tell them that they were God, that he was God. And, 
and they weren't really believing it. He was kind of building up followers. Everybody kind of saw him a threat to their lifestyle and their authority. And so when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified because people wanted him to be crucified. And so, but the disciples were sad because the disciples actually saw him for who he was and knew that an innocent man was being killed and the people that he was actually dying to save were the people that were killing him. And so there was a sadness with the disciples, but the world uh, was really rejoicing with what they were doing. And so keep in mind, in the Easter timeline, we're on day uh, Thursday would be where we are at this point. Uh, in the next 24 hours, Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're probably already on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane at this point. Um, he would be betrayed, arrested, tried three times, uh, beaten, crucified, and then eventually killed. And these disciples would be scattered out in fear, right? And so, um, but three days later, of course, he would raise from the dead and he would come back and he would appear to, uh, in person to his disciples, uh, having accomplished everything that he has been saying that he would accomplish, namely our salvation. And then after 50 days, uh, he would uh, spend 50 days with them in person um, as a resurrected Christ. And then he would leave again in Acts chapter 2 and he would ascend back to the Father and then send, uh, send them the Holy Spirit to live with them uh, forever. And so with that in mind, he kind of moves forward to verse 22 and says, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Because when he gives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, now we literally have the Spirit the Holy Spirit, which brings the joy of the Lord living inside of us. Nobody can take that away. If you are a Christian, the joy of the Lord lives in you because the Spirit of God lives in you. And he says, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until uh, now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And so Jesus is saying, hey, like Friday is going to be a pretty difficult day. Like you are going to weep and mourn. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Um, but you have to remember that Sunday is coming. You know, and that's a message for them in, in real life. But I also want you to understand that it is an incredible way to think about your life. You know, at, at this point, we live uh, on earth. And so we face a lot of difficult things. And you can almost think about it like this. And uh, in the narrative of, of, of Easter and the resurrection, Friday uh, was a day of suffering. It was a day of pain. It was a day of, of death and agony when it, come, when it came to Christ. And then Saturday, of course, Jesus was in the grave. He had not resurrected yet. So it was a day of uh, really uh, confusion. Um, you know, it was a day of, of, of misery. It was a day of doubt. I mean, there was just a lot of things going through the mind of, of believers. You know, and so Friday and Saturday were, were not really enjoyable days for them at that point. But then Sunday, of course, Christ resurrected. He conquered death, and it was a day of, of great victory, of great hope, of great joy. You know, and in a lot of ways, uh, we, look, we, we can live in resurrection life today in part, but we still live in this world the same world that crucified Jesus. And so we're going to face a lot of difficult things in this world. You know, we're going to have some Fridays in life, you know, where we feel like uh, we're walking through suffering. There's a lot of pain going on in our life. Um, 
you know, there's, there's agony, there's, there's death that we're facing physically uh, in this world. There's also going to be some Saturdays where you, you, you're filled with doubt and confusion and maybe it's just miserable for, for a lot of things. But we have to keep in mind as believers, Sunday's always coming. You know, and, and, and the reality is because of Christ, we live in Resurrection Sunday spiritually, though while until heaven, physically we're walking through Thursdays and Fridays. And so it's a good way to think about your life as a believer. And, and Jesus goes on to say, after Sunday, no one will be able to take away your joy ever again. Nobody can take this spirit of God uh, that is going to fill you away from you. No circumstance. Uh, no enemy, nothing can remove from you this joy that I'm going to leave with you in the Holy Spirit because nothing can separate us from God. You know, if, if, if we believe the Bible, we didn't do anything to get salvation. We can't do anything to lose salvation. We didn't do enough good things for the Spirit of God to come to us. God put the Holy Spirit of God in us. We can't do enough bad things for him to take the Holy Spirit from us. He says we are sealed, we are signed, we are delivered, right? We are saved and we have the Holy Spirit in us. And as long as the Spirit of God is in us, the joy of the Lord is in us, no matter what the world may throw at us. Complete joy with Jesus for eternity. That is the promise of salvation. What an incredible, incredible promise. Y'all should have amen that. Verse 25. He says, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I, no longer, when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. And in that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That's a very, very important truth to understand. Like when we believe in Christ, now the love of the Father has been set upon us. We believe in Christ and follow him and believe in him that he is the son of God, the father literally sets his love on us. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. Verse 28, I came from the father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the father. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Jesus replied, oh, do you now believe? Almost like a, like a joke. A time is coming, and this is Jesus uh, predicting what's going to happen. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you, disciples, will be scattered, each of you to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And so you can kind of see what Jesus is doing. He's honing in on this idea of in the world, Though, though everybody may leave our side, the Father, the Spirit, God himself is with us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he physically, everybody left his side. Nobody was there with him. But the Father was with him. He had the presence of God, and the presence of God, he was God, of course, but the presence of God is enough for him. And we see that, and it's very, very important that we see it. And then he says, probably the most profound statement in the entire passage, verse 33. I've told you this, or I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Somebody say peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. 
So you see, Jesus knows what's about to happen. Again, we read this, and we read it through the lens of the resurrection. We've already seen that. We know the Bible. We know the end of the story. But at this point, they did not, but Jesus did because Jesus, of course, is God. He's outside of time, so he knows what's going to happen. As bad as these disciples would want to stick by Jesus' side, they would not. They did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit, so they, they could not. It was physically impossible for them to follow Jesus. That's why the Spirit is such a big deal. They would end up falling asleep when Jesus asked them to go pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they would end up denying him before the people that crucified Jesus. They would ask, hey, are you with this guy? And they would say no. Peter, of course, would say no three times. Uh, and eventually, uh, as Jesus would be tried and crucified, the disciples would be scattered out to homes in fear, and they would physically leave Jesus all alone. But Jesus makes it clear, I'm not alone because my Father is with me, and he makes maybe the most powerful closing remark in the entire Bible, and I want you to memorize this. If, if you, you don't already have it memorized, you will by the end of the sermon, where he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And then he says, in this world you will have trouble, somebody say trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, right? This is a huge statement and, and probably uh, has tons of implications for all of us. But Jesus says, I've told you all of this, meaning the whole discourse that he has just shared from John 13, really all the way through John 16, were words to his disciples so that they would have peace in the events of what was about to happen through the crucifixion, through the resurrection, through the ascension, he says, hey, I'm telling you all this beforehand so that you may have peace, so that you will have peace. In the midst of a world where trouble is inevitable, Jesus wants them to have peace, and he wants them to have peace with his presence. That's what he's telling them. Starting at the cross, they would need peace, right? Even beyond that, most of these uh, disciples, actually all of these disciples outside of John would eventually be persecuted and killed for their faith, but they would have peace because they had Jesus. They had the presence of God with them in the Holy Spirit. They would end up facing a much, uh, a life of trouble and a life of persecution and a life of great tribulation. But the promise of the gospel for them and the promise of the gospel for us and the promise of the resurrection and the promise of Jesus himself in his own words is I will be with you, and I have overcome the world. And those two statements have a profound impact on us, meaning there's nothing in this world, including death, that can rob us of the peace and joy that we have in Christ. Because there's nothing that can separate us from Christ, because Christ died on the cross to accomplish that reconciliation for us. And this has to be our mindset as a Christian in the world today that in this world we will face trouble and that being a Christian does not promise a life of ease and a life of comfort. The Bible never promises that. If you think being a Christian makes life easy, you've misread the Bible. I mean, that Jesus was crucified, all of his disciples were persecuted and eventually killed. There's that, that's not in there, nor does, uh, does following Jesus promise a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. The whole teaching of Christianity is that our hope is not found in this world. It really doesn't matter what happens to us in this world because we're not living for this world. We're living for eternity. We will find all of our reward in heaven. And so we live to that end in this world. 
In this world, you will have trouble. That is a promise. Write that down. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world, and that is a promise as well. And so today, I just want to dive into this verse. Verse 33, I want you to underline it, highlight it in your Bible, whatever you got to do. It says, I've told you, I've, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace, and in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So how does that truth, how does this verse, how does pretty much the concluding statement of this whole last words with Jesus and his disciples, how does that change our lives? How does it change our mindset? How does it change our actions? How does it change our worldview and how we live our life on this earth? And so I wanna give you four things. The first is this. Number one, it gives us a sobering, it gives us sobering news about the reality of this world. So here's kind of the sad part of the sermon. So stay, stay tuned. I'll give you the good part in a minute. The first is it gives us a sobering news about the reality of the world. So it gives us realistic expectations for our time on this earth. That the, and it tells us that the world is broken. The world is a fallen place. The world is uh, impacted greatly by sin. And so when Adam and Eve, Adam, uh, Eve sinned in the early beginning, now the whole world would be full of sin because sin would be inherited by all people. And now as people fill the earth, apart from Christ, sin fills the earth. And because of that, the world is broken, the world has fallen, it is not as God intends for it to be. Heaven will not be like the world today. The world before sin came into it was different, right? Heaven on the front end and heaven on the back end. The garden was heaven, and then the, the heaven will be, it will be perfect fellowship with God. No sin, none, none of the brokenness that we see in this world today. And because of the fallen world, there's so much darkness, and there's trouble that we will face. There's suffering, there's tribulation, there's persecution. All of this stuff will happen in this world as a Christian. I mean, Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they're gonna hate you too because of me. As soon as you identify with Christ, the world begins to work against you. And as a Christian, we don't bypass this. We live in this world. And until Jesus returns to eradicate sin and darkness, which he will do, this is our physical reality. This is our reality of what we live in. This is why Jesus says to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. Read that again. That's not you might have trouble. It's not you may have trouble. It's not you could have trouble. It is, you will have trouble. Jesus is guaranteeing that in this world we will face trouble. Now, we all don't get to pick what kind of trouble uh, that we face, but we all will face some sort of suffering and trouble in this world. And for some of us, we don't like to think about that. We don't like to think about that. When we think about God's promises, we like to focus on all the blessings, forgiveness, mercy, eternal life, all of that. And when it comes to suffering, we don't like to think about it. And largely, most of us in this room we don't have a theology of suffering. Like we, we don't know what the Bible says about suffering. And because of that, when something does hit us or we do go into a time of, of uh, where something's beyond our control and it's a difficult time, a lot of us don't really know what to do with that. And so today, I want us to dig into that a little bit. I believe it's one of the, the callings of my life as your pastor to teach you about suffering because the Bible speaks so much into this in the New Testament. It's such a huge deal. God's word is clear on this, that we will face trouble, we will face suffering. And it's a big deal for us to think through it. For many people, God and suffering are not compatible. 
Uh, I thought God was for me. Why is this bad stuff happening to me is kind of the mindset of the world. Like, how can God be good and there be suffering? That doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Like, I thought he was a good God. Why would he allow this suffering to go on throughout the world? All you got to do is watch the news for a little bit to see how much bad stuff is going on. But again, we have to remember what Scripture teaches us about suffering. Again, we know suffering's not forever. Like, heaven will not have suffering. So we're in this interesting time period where God is allowing suffering in the world because he's allowing sin in the world because you and I would be eradicated if, if he took sin out, right? And so you can't say, oh, God, why don't you just remove suffering from the world? Because to remove suffering, he'd have to remove who? Us. But now we're in this period of time where God is allowing his kindness to draw people to repentance, to allow sinners to be saved. And so we live in this time period of the church and the mission of God of where we're to make disciples and evangelize and to invite people into the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. If we ask God, just take this suffering away, then what happens is we're asking for all of our lost friends to be eradicated from the earth. And so we have to understand what time period that we're in. But that doesn't change the fact that we're all going to have to deal with some sort of uh, suffering in our life or some sort of trouble in our life because we're, we're living in this world. I'm not preaching to a people who don't know that there's difficult things happening. And so a couple things I want you to see from the truth of Scripture about suffering. Letter A, we suffer because we live in a fallen world. So if you haven't been clear, write that down. We suffer because we live in a fallen world. We face trouble because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes that's beyond our control. Other times we do things. We, we maybe make decisions that cause suffering in our life. But when it comes to things that are beyond our control, it, it's to be blamed on the fallen world that we live in. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that has now been deposited into a worldly, earthly body that will uh, be subject to suffering and trouble. He says, we have this treasure, the Spirit of God, in jars of clay. That's our body. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So what Paul is saying is in this world, we'll face trouble, but we have the spirit of victory. We have the spirit of joy, the spirit of peace in us. And so even though our earthly body may be subject to suffering, we will have the spiritual rejoicing of heaven in us. It's why when a Christian faces suffering, it's different than when a non-Christian faces suffering. Right? We should face it with joy, knowing that, hey, this isn't the end for us, which is letter B. Letter B is we suffer because God, because God uses it to produce good in us. Right? So again, I don't know that God causes all the suffering, but at the end of the day, he uses suffering, even a bad thing, for his good and for our good, and eventually for his glory. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says it this way, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials or tribulation of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work, 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so God has a purpose for trouble in your life. When you walk through difficulty, when you walk through suffering, when you walk through tribulation of any kind, God has not forgotten about you. He's not given up on you. God uses those times in our life to produce maturity and to produce uh, growth in our faith. And so, but that can't happen if we don't begin to think about suffering this way of like, Lord, okay, not God, why are you allowing this? But God, what are you trying to do in my life through this? What are you trying to teach me? I know things won't be this way forever and God may change our circumstances today or tomorrow, but he may not. And so in the midst of those circumstances, how can I begin to see what God's trying to do in my life because he's trying to produce steadfastness and perseverance and maturity in me. So he has a purpose for our suffering. Letter C, suffering also prepares us for how God wants to use us. You need to understand this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, right? So suffering uh, is not about us in a lot of ways. God's taking us through something so that we can minister to others. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, this is Paul, who went through many trouble, in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. You see what he's doing there? So as God comforts him, as God teaches him, as God meets him in his trouble, He's able to now minister to other people through what God has shown him in the midst of his trouble. It's, it's really important to understand that. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. That's pretty tough. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. I thought I was going to die, is what Paul says. But this happened, I figured out, God taught me, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so many times, difficult circumstances move us to depend on God like good circumstances never would. And so God uses those things uh, to teach us so that we can teach others. This is why the church is such a big deal. There's people in this room that have walked through many, many difficult things that some of you are walking through right now. And if the church is just an event that you come to on Sundays and not a family that you belong to, then what God wants to do in taking this person that's been through what you're going through and sharing their experience with you, sharing what God taught to them will, will never happen. So this is why it's so important that we're in a connect group, that when we're walking through difficult things, we don't have to sit back and act like we're perfect or everything's perfect. No, like, the church is about being real. 
This is a family. It's a place where we can share what is happening in our lives. We can talk to others about what's going on free of judgment because everybody in here is broken and has gone through some difficult things, and we can minister to one another and share what God has taught us through these things. And then the fourth letter D, the final thing that we see from Scripture about suffering is that suffering teaches us that this world is not our final home. This world is not our final home. And so anytime we see things happening that are not the way that God intends for them to be, injustices, sickness, uh, divorce, whatever it is that that maybe you've walked through that are not the way God intends for them to be, uh, we should look and say, this is another evidence that, that this is not my home. I belong somewhere else. So listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 5. 5, verse 5. 16 says this, Therefore we do not lose heart. Does that language sound familiar? Though outwardly, Paul says, we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, that's what, how Paul defines suffering on this earth. He says, anything that we walk through on this earth that we think is the most difficult thing we've ever walked through. From the view of heaven, it is a light and momentary uh, trouble. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So any light and momentary trouble, which is all trouble that we walk through in this world, God says, in them, it is achieving for you something in heaven that will be so be- so better that you'll look back and say, man, that wasn't nothing. <laughs> so just let your mind run with that of what potentially that could look like. That's, eternal, that's an eternal view of suffering. So we fix our eyes, listen, Paul says, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Chapter five, verse one, for we know that if, this, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, then we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You, You hear what Paul's teaching there. So basically he's saying, our time on earth, there should be a part of us, the Spirit of God in us, that groans and longs for a better world. And so if there's something in you, you should feel that groaning of like, man, this isn't the way things should be. This thing shouldn't be happening. And he says, but we have to understand while we're in this time period on earth, this is an earthly tent that we live in on purpose, by design, by God, until we get to our heavenly home. That's what he is saying. And so we must learn that this earthly tent is going to decay. This earthly tent is going to be beat down and struck down and walk through some things, but it cannot change the fact that the heavenly tent, uh, which is uh, the Spirit of God in us, uh, lives inside. And you really got to understand the Old Testament to understand this idea of the tent. The presence of God is a big deal in the Bible. Like if you read the Old Testament, I mean, there was a temple, 
And then in the inside of the temple, the Holy of Holies would be where the presence of God was. And listen, these people would do some crazy stuff to get into the presence of God because where the presence of God is, the power of God is there. And where the power of God is, life change happens. And so what would happen is they would be washing themselves, sacrificing things, taking all kind of baths and doing all kind of ceremonial rituals to try to get themselves clean enough to go in the Holy of Holies so that they could be in the presence of God. But get this, in the New Testament, the temple is torn down. And Jesus comes and he says, hey, watch this. Now, if you are a believer, you're the temple. You're the temple because the Spirit of God, the very presence of God that was in the Holy of Holies, the power of God is no longer in a building. It's now inside of the believers. And so now nowhere you go as a Christian do you go without the power of God and the presence of God with you. And so this changes everything when it comes to suffering in hard times. Because at no point in anything that you face this difficult in this world, difficult or good, do you go anywhere without the presence and power of God with you. This is such a beautiful, beautiful promise. And keep in mind, Jesus himself was no stranger to pain. I mean, when Jesus came from heaven to earth, his whole life on earth was filled with trouble and was suffering. I mean, Herod tried to kill him as a baby. He was under constant scrutiny from religious leaders who should have loved him. He was mocked and humiliated and ridiculed. He was betrayed by people close to him. He was outcasted, alienated, falsely accused. He was seen as a threat to people's lifestyles and to people's power, and so they treated him terribly. And of course, we all know he was crucified and killed. Like he literally came to earth as the suffering servant to show us an example of how we may be treated. And he overcame it. And he went through all of what he went through to put an end once and for all to all the world's suffering. And that's what he means when he says, I've overcome the world. Listen, I've taken all the suffering that the world has to offer. I've taken the wages of sin, I've been put to death, and I've overcome death. And literally, death is the strongest thing that the world can do to us, is kill us. But as a Christian, death no longer has any power because God has depowered it. He's overcome it. So as a Christian, when we die spiritually, we live forever. And then when he comes back, we get another body, and this body's even better than the body we got now. And so what he's saying is, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world, and this is what Jesus is reminding us of in 1633. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. Because that's what this mindset of suffering does, is no matter what you face in this earth, it fills you with peace, and it fills you with victory. It's why Paul can say, listen, to, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I would actually rather be killed so that I can go and be with God, but I think it, God's leaving me here because there's more ministry to do. And so we have this mindset, and this is the mindset, and it's so foreign to us. Like nobody in here probably has that mindset, including myself. But this is the mindset God wants us to adopt is, hey, even if we face difficult, hard things in here, we have to see them through the lens of Scripture because suffering teaches us that this world is not our final home. So in the same breath, that's the bad news of the sermon. Now we're moving to the good news, and it's not even bad news. It's great news, right? In the same breath that God promised suffering and trouble, he also promises peace and victory. 
So in the same breath, he's saying, hey, you will face trouble, but hey, I'm telling you these things so you can have peace. I've overcome the world. You're an overcomer. That's what he's saying. And so the second thing I want you to see from verse 33 is that Jesus teaches us the pathway to peace and joy. This verse, this truth teaches us about the pathway to peace and joy. You see, in the Bible, write this down, peace is not the absence of trouble and suffering. So the Bible never teaches that peace is the absence of, of, of trouble and suffering. So peace is not about the absence of bad things happening. Peace is about the presence of Jesus. Like that's what it is. Like peace is not the absence of bad things, it is the presence of the best thing, which is Christ in our lives. Joy kind of the same way. Joy is not dictated by our circumstances. Joy is a person, and his name is Jesus. And when you have the Holy Spirit, that joy now lives in you. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, right? You can keep on going, but peace, joy, all of that comes with the Holy Spirit when it comes into our life. And in Christ, we are promised both of those, peace and joy now and peace and joy for eternity. Because when we have Christ, we have peace and joy and abundant life in him. That's why we sing Christ is enough. Christ is enough. No matter what you're going through, Christ is enough. That is the question of Christianity. Is he enough? And he is enough. Whether you believe it or not, he is. And so we must begin to see him as Christ for who he is. He is our pathway to peace and to joy. And that's what Christ accomplished for us when he died on the cross. And so how does this work? Like how do we uh, experience peace and joy with Christ? And I, I can't go into depth with this, but Steve and, uh, and, and Blake did a good job with it. But it has to do with learning about the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Like you have to learn a couple things. You need to learn and you need to allow, if the Spirit's in you, for the Spirit of God to guide you into truth. And just think about when you read the scriptures, when the Spirit of God's in you, the Spirit of God is the best teacher you can ever have. And so those truths, the Spirit of God personalizes for you. That's why it's such a big deal. But not only that, uh, the Spirit of God also brings the presence of God. That's what I was talking about a while ago. And so we need to learn what it means to walk in the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. Paul would say to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, to abide in Him, to walk in Him, to rest in him. It's why Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But he's showing us that in the path, as we begin to walk in obedience and do the things God asks us to do, what happens is the spirit of God and the presence of God begins to bring a great peace and joy into our life. And then also in the passage, you see that part of it is that peace and joy comes through prayer. He says, literally, in verse 23, in that day, you, he, says, he says, ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And so we need to understand that nothing brings peace and joy into our lives quite like prayer. Because prayer unlocks the power of God in our lives. It unlocks peace and joy into our life. It connects us to God in relationship because when we pray, it fixes our attention on him. It allows him to speak to us because we're in a posture of telling God things 
and asking God to reveal things to us, hopefully with our Bibles open where God can speak to us and we're in the posture of listening. Because ultimately when we pray in Jesus's name, not only is that because Jesus accomplished that access, but like we saw in John 15, when we pray in his name, it means that we're aligned to the will of God. And as we pray the will of God, because we're at one with God in mind and thought and action, literally God answers our prayers. And as our prayers are answered, it renews our joy. And so it's a beautiful picture of where this peace and joy comes from. And so my question for you is, are you experiencing peace and joy this morning? Are you experiencing the peace and joy of God? You've got to get to know this Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. He is a person, not an it, not a force, not something that's a mystery. God tells us so much about the Spirit of God. Begin to figure out, how does he work in my life? What does he do? Go ask that to your connect group leader. They'd love to walk you through what that looks like in your life. The third thing we see in this verse is that it helps us know how to respond to our trials and to our suffering. It helps us know how, have you ever noticed how people in the Bible respond to trials and suffering in their life? I mean, it'll blow you away. I mean, it, it, you talk about convicted. Like in the book of Acts, as the believers in Acts are walking through difficult things, it literally says they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of God. What? They literally are about to be killed, and it says they were rejoicing because they were counted to worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's unbelievable. That's so far from our mindsets in this room today. I mean, you think about Paul in Philippians 3. He almost invites suffering into his life. What does he say? He says, I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to experience in him through suffering. And so what Paul knows is that part of walking through suffering and difficult things in this world is that we begin to know Christ and relate to Christ more than any other time in our life when we're walking through difficulty because his whole life was a life of suffering as a servant. And so there's things on the other side of difficulty in your life Namely, knowing Christ more, being more dependent on Christ, just understanding Christ at a level that you couldn't if you weren't walking through those things. Not only that, we see James, he says, consider it pure joy. Like, come on, like, come on man. Like, I, joy maybe, but pure joy, like the highest level of joy when you face trials of many kinds and tribulation and testing of many kinds. Like, come on, man. And so what do they know that we don't know? They got a different view of suffering. They see it through the lens of God. They see suffering as a pathway to know God more. And may we as a church begin to see it that way. And when we see it that way, the way we respond to difficulty in our life will change. And listen to me, when it produces joy in us and when it causes us to press into God and not run away from God, what God will do in our lives and through our lives is absolutely amazing. There is no greater apologetic than a joyful, faithful Christian in the midst of suffering. 
I could give you story after story in the Bible. Think about Stephen. Stephen's being stoned to death, and he does it in a faithful way, and Paul's in the crowd. And guess who gets saved a couple chapters later in the book of Acts? Paul. You know why I think he got saved? Because I think he saw Stephen. And he said, if this dude believes this this much, I need to figure this out. And Jesus reveals himself to him, he gets saved. Acts 16, the believers are in prison. And they're in prison and Paul and, and Timothy are singing, singing hymns in, in, in like a penitentiary. I'm not talking like just a sitting there chilling jail. I'm talking they got stirrups on. I mean, they're, they're chained in from every location. They're singing earthquake breaks out, everybody leaves, they stay in there, lead the jailer to Christ. And don't you know, their response to difficulty had everything to do with what God was trying to do in their life. It is absolutely incredible to see what God can do with someone. So how are you responding to the trials and suffering in your life? Like, does it sound like that? Would we begin to change the way we think about these things? And then I'll close with this. The last thing that we see in verse 33 is the glory of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Uh, it is such a beautiful thing to think about the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. But the thing I don't want any of us to miss about that is that him overcoming the world did not come at a cheap price. He had to come to earth he had to live the life that none of us could live and he had to die the death that all of us deserve to die because the wages of sin is death and when he died on the cross that's exactly what he did he died for the forgiveness of our sin so that we could be reconciled to God and if that weren't enough he rose from the dead on the third day to show his victory over sin and his victory over death so that now as a Christian We've died to the penalty of sin, but also to the power of sin. And now we get to spend eternity with Christ forever. And nothing in this world can take that away from us. You talk about security. That's incredible security. So my question is, do you know him? Is that spirit at work in you? Do you have a relationship with that Christ? Has that gospel and what Christ did on the cross ever become real to you because that's what the Spirit of God does? Do you believe it was Jesus dying on a cross for you? Do you believe when he rose from the grave, it was Jesus raising up for you so that you could have eternal life? And if you don't know it today, I pray that you'd receive it. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. If that's you, you'd say, Billy, yeah, that's me. I don't have a relationship with God. I've never been saved. I've never turned from my sin and trusted in Christ and what he's done for me on the cross. There's no evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in my life, but today I want that to change. I believe that he did everything necessary to save me. I want to surrender my life to him. If that's you in the room, I'm going to ask you to be bold. We want to pray with you. Would you just lift your hand and say, Billy, that's me. That's me. Amen. Anybody else? You say, Billy, that's me. I want to be saved. I want to know God. So, Father, here's our prayer. God, as a church, would you do in us what we can't do in ourselves? God, we want to be people of peace. God, we want to be people of joy. God, we want to be people characterized by your Holy Spirit. God, we want to be people that 
when we walk through the difficulties of life, we do it with our eyes fixed on you and with the Spirit of God working in us and through us to other people. So God, would you create that in us so that we can be a people that reflect your glory to the world that you've placed us in. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand up and sing?